We're going to return to the book of Romans this morning. I think before we even look at this text, which is a, a vital text for us to understand, we need to ask, why are we here? What is the purpose of gathering as Christians on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday morning? I came across a poem recently, and some say Spurgeon wrote this, others say Emily Dickinson. And it just reminds us of, of why we're here. It says, some go to church to take a walk. Some go there to laugh and talk. Some go there to meet a friend. Some go there time to spend. Some go there to meet a lover. Some go there a fault to cover. Some go there for speculation. Some go there for observation. Some go there to doze and nod. The wise go there to worship God. There's a lot of reasons people are attracted to a church. A lot of reasons people join a church. A lot of reasons people come on Sunday. But we want a church that gathers to worship God. Sure, we'll have friends. Sure, we'll maybe even some people will meet a spouse there. But we gather in this church to worship God. That is the sole reason that we're together. Most of you would not know one another if it wasn't for joining the same church, getting to know one another, developing that friendship. We're here, though, to worship God by the power of the Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the main way that we do that is to take in God's Word. We sing together, we pray together, we read Scripture together, but we also hear the Word preached. And what we do here normally is an expository sermon. That's where we go verse by verse, passage by passage, the preacher opens that up, explains it. There's a lot of explanation, not because this is a class, not because it's a lecture, because we need to understand what God said before we can apply it. So it's opened up, and then it is applied to the listener. First of all, applied to the preacher himself as he's studying the passage, but then applied in the sermon to the whole body, to the whole congregation. So let's do that this morning. Romans 1. We're looking now at 16 and 17, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, the Apostle Paul here, the Apostle to the Gentiles, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now we've been looking at Romans starting from October, the month of October, up through December. And we covered the first 15 verses. And what we saw there is the first seven verses, Paul is simply saying, here's who I am and here's my mission. He wants to tell the reader, he wants to tell the Romans, and now we read it today, who he is. Why is he even writing this letter, in other words? Who is this guy that's writing to the Romans? They've never really met him. Only a few people knew, personally knew Paul. And what his mission is. Both of those are important. Who he is and what his mission is. And then we looked at 8 through 15, which covered Paul's prayer for the church. He wanted them to know that he was constantly praying for them. He wanted them to know the details of why he was praying and that even... He wanted them to know he was coming to them. He desired to do that. God had prevented it in God's providence. But he really desired to come to Rome and to preach the gospel. This morning, we now come out of the introduction there. 1 through 15 is considered the introduction. We come out of that to this thesis statement, to the theme statement of Romans. 
verses 16 and 17, are the heart, really not just of Romans, but the Christian message as a whole. We could say it's even the heart of the gospel. He's talking about the gospel here, and he's summarizing the whole book. What he's going to spend the rest of Romans opening up, he is summarizing in verses 16 and 17. He is talking here about the gospel, the good news. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to save sinners. He died in the believer's place. He suffered the wrath we deserved. He was raised again on the third day. And if we trust in him for salvation, we can be saved from the wrath of God. We will be saved from God's wrath. But he says, I want to come to Rome to preach the gospel to you. He's going to preach to believers. He's coming to preach to the church. No doubt he'll preach to unbelievers. That's just part of what Paul does. But the interesting thing for us is he says in verse 15, So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The gospel is for believers too. The gospel is not something that when you get saved, you set it aside and you move on to the more advanced theology of the Bible. No, the gospel is something you just keep opening up and getting further and further in. You could say that the whole Bible contains the gospel, yes, is the gospel as well, from beginning to end. It's the good news of what God has done, is doing, and will do to save sinners. So we're not done with the gospel no matter how long you're a Christian. Don't ever say that. Don't ever say you're done with the gospel. The gospel is for believers. In fact, Paul is going to go really deep with his theology in the book of Romans. And he says, all of that is preaching the gospel. Because there's more we need to understand. Yeah, you're saved initially when you hear the gospel and you believe in Christ. But there's more you need to understand. Can you really plumb the depths of God in this life? Even in eternity, you can't understand all there is to know about God. And Paul says, I've got some things to teach you, Romans. I've got some things to help you understand. So that you believe the right things. And get more edified in the faith. But also... So that you know how to live it out. And he'll cover both of those in the book of Romans. So let's dig in and look at just these two verses. And let's understand what Paul is saying here. First of all, I want you to see why some are ashamed of the gospel. Paul says he's not ashamed. Which indicates there's a temptation by Christians to be ashamed. That maybe some people who preach the gospel in his day and even today are ashamed of the gospel. They are ashamed of this truth of Jesus Christ, this good news. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Ashamed here, the Greek word means to experience a painful feeling or a sense of loss of status because some particular event or activity. Shame is that feeling that you have that people are looking at you the wrong way. You've lost the status in front of them that you once had. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not coming to boast about myself, he says. I'm coming to talk about Christ. It's really the opposite of pride. Paul says, look, I am not ashamed. I'm coming to talk about Christ. Paul says, my pride is not in me, but it's in Jesus Christ. This is what he said to the Galatians. Chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 16. May it never be that I would boast. Paul says, I'm not going to boast. Except... In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we can boast about. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
He says, it doesn't matter about the world. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about me, what the world thinks about Christ. I am going to proclaim Christ and I'm going to boast about Jesus Christ. But there are some who are ashamed of the gospel. Paul says he's not, but there are some who are. There are some who were in his day. The world was full of pagans. People who followed false gods, they bowed down to idols, they bowed down to statues, they went to pagan temples. And they trusted in philosophy of men, either the priest of that temple or just the philosophers in general. They trusted in them and they mocked Paul. They said, Paul, you should be ashamed of what you're teaching. They even called him a babbler in the book of Acts when he's preaching in Athens. They called him a speaker of strange things. They mocked him for the gospel message of a resurrected Messiah. Who would believe in a resurrection, they said. Today, the world mocks Christians. We're mocked more and more, it seems like, in the Western world than we have been in centuries. The world thinks that Christians ought to be shamed for what Christ did. They're just believing in what Christ did. Just believing in what he taught. The world thinks we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. You'll even see people say that now in different media. They'll say Christians ought to be ashamed of their beliefs about gender, about sexuality, about the only way to God being through Christ. The world thinks that Christians should be shamed for the atonement. The fact that the Son of God would come and die to appease the wrath of His Father for us. Nowadays, scholars call that even so-called biblical scholars, which are really just non-believing scholars who study the Bible, they say that's cosmic child abuse. You Christians should be ashamed, they say, of believing in cosmic child abuse. There's a lot of shame that the world wants to lump onto Christians. Biblical morality and sexuality, they completely reject what the Bible teaches on that. Completely rejected. In fact, it's changing so fast that a year or two ago, people who thought they were up to speed on sexual morality in the world are now being castigated by those folks coming today saying, even that's not right. It changes so quick. You've got to keep up with the times to know what the world believes. By the way, next week, I'm preaching on that topic. Along with hundreds of, maybe thousands of churches in America and Canada, Uh, John MacArthur has asked all those who attend the Shepherds Conference, went to the seminary, lots of Canadian pastors as well, to preach on biblical sexual morality. Because the laws in Canada now are changing so much that you can't even tell someone that they ought to obey Scripture and not go on in a sinful lifestyle. So next week, that'll be the topic. Not, Not Romans, we'll look at a passage in 1 Corinthians. We need to stand for the truth. That's another thing that the world says Christians ought to be ashamed that we say we have the absolute truth in the Word of God. That's shameful these days, the world says. You're not supposed to say you're the only one who knows the truth by looking at Scripture. There are many truths. Postmodernism says whatever your truth is, is true. It's kind of a strange way of saying it, but... That's essentially what they say. The world tries to heap shame on Christians for how they live. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'll come to Rome. I'll come to the capital where the emperor is and all of his soldiers and his bodyguard and all these temples are located and I will preach the gospel. But today, it's not just the world that puts shame upon Christians or tries to. It's also those within Christianity who are ashamed. 
There are people within so-called Christianity that are ashamed of Christ, ashamed of the gospel. Churches, preachers are ashamed to preach that there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. Preachers are ashamed to preach the gospel, the true gospel. The word, they might offend people because the gospel does offend people. It offended all of us until we truly believed in Christ. And the softer you make it, the less and less it is the true gospel until eventually it's so watered down that you cannot, you cannot call it the gospel anymore. Some people are ashamed of what the Bible teaches just on worship in the church. They think they need to add something to it. The Bible's not enough to tell us how to worship. We need to add entertainment. We need to bring in the masses. We need to keep people interested. They're ashamed to preach the word of God because it bores people, they say. We need to do something else. We need to move away from that. Just throw up a verse occasionally on the screen, but talk stories. They're ashamed of the Bible. And many Christians, we sometimes fall into this category. We're ashamed to obey and follow Scripture. How will this make me look to my friends, my family, my co-workers, if I follow Scripture on this? There's a lot of shame that the world and even so-called Christianity tries to heap on Christians. But we've got to be like Paul. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of what Christ has done, what Christ has taught, what the Word of God says. Let God speak for Himself. Spurgeon used to say that the Word of God is like a lion. You just need to let it out of its cage and it'll defend itself. You don't need to defend God. You don't need to defend the Bible. Just explain what it means and stand by that truth. Don't be ashamed. Jesus had something to say to His disciples about this. The exact same word in Greek for ashamed that Paul uses here in Romans. Jesus says in Mark 8.38, For whoever is ashamed of me, now he says, who's ashamed of me? That, that often makes sense to us. But he also says, and my words. It's not just okay to say, I love Jesus, but I don't like the Bible. That's not okay. He says, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, because the world wants to pressure us to not believe in Christ and his word. He says, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. If you spend your life guarding yourself, trying to make sure the world loves you, it won't work. Jesus says, you're not mine. You're not mine if you're ashamed of me and my words. So that's how Paul starts here. And he's just saying, that's why I want to come to Rome. I'm ashamed of the gospel. But secondly here, he gives a couple of reasons as to why he is not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed to come preach the truth. Because number one, The gospel is God's saving power. It's God's saving power. He says, look at verse 16, the rest of it. For it is the power of God for salvation. How could any Christian be ashamed of God's saving power? It's God. Look at 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why do we need God's saving power? Because if we're not saved by God's power, then we fall into this other category that he's about to go into in verse 18. The wrath of God. You've either been saved by God's power or you're under the wrath of God. And he's not going to mince words here and the rest of chapter 1 when he gets into that. He's going to talk about all the sin that humanity commits. 
And it all falls under ungodliness and unrighteousness. But with God's saving power, we're removed from that. God's effective power. You can think of it here as his effective power that brings men and women and children to be saved from his wrath. This is not the power that God gives Christians to live a holy life, like Paul talks about in Ephesians. This is God's own power to save. That he is taking sinful people, removing them from that category of under his wrath to salvation, to born again, to being in Christ. Nothing can save from God's wrath but God himself. If God's the most powerful being in the universe, which he is, and it's his wrath that is revealed against creation, against his people that he created, who else can save from that wrath? It's got to be God himself. Paul's going to get into that over and over in Romans. Only God, the judge, can save from his own courtroom that's going to convict us. It's going to tell us we're guilty. Only God can do that through his power. It's not man's power, in other words. Paul says, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it has nothing to do with man's power. It's all about God's power, not just God's power in general, but God's power to save. Commentator Morris, in his commentary on this book, he says the gospel is not advice to people, suggesting that they lift themselves up. It is power. It, the power, lifts them up. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but that it is power. Notice that verb, is, right here. And God's power at that. When the gospels preach, this is not simply so many words being uttered. The power of God is at work. When the gospel enters anyone's life, it is as though the very fire of God had come upon him. There is warmth and light in his life. That's the power of God. If you've been saved, you know the power of God. You know what that's like. It's not just a feeling, but it's something that actually happened in your life. It's a truth that has come into your heart. And of course, you experience feelings that go along with that. But it's a whole change of person. It's a change of heart. It's God's power. But it says, to everyone who believes. The gospel is not power to save for the unbeliever, but to everyone who believes. That's the only person who experiences God's saving power. Paul is already getting into this idea. It's got to come through faith. It's not that all people are saved. God's power to save is to everyone who believes. Yes, at some point you're an unbeliever and then you believe. But this power is focused on those who have faith in Christ, the Messiah, for salvation. God does the work, in other words. God is doing the work here to save. The person doesn't go from unbelief to belief of his own power. Even before that, which he talks about in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, even the faith that we have is a gift from God. It's all of God from beginning to end. Yes, we must respond. We must respond in faith. But it's through faith alone. It's not because of our faith. It doesn't come back and rest upon us, but it's God. And his power to save. That's the gospel, Paul says. I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's for everyone who believes. It doesn't matter the race. It doesn't matter the class. It doesn't matter where they're from, when they're born, who they're born to. What matters is they hear about Jesus Christ and believe. And now he expands that into two groups. To the Jew first 
and also to the Greek. So it doesn't matter if it's Jew or Greek. In other words, Greeks are just the non-Jews, the Gentiles. This is not unique to Paul, though, the way he says this. Sometimes people get upset, the Jew first. What does he mean by that? Look, Jesus said the same thing. He told the woman at the well, he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, speaking about the Jews. And he says, for salvation is from the Jews, John 4, 22. That's all Paul's saying. To the Jew first. The gospel was promised to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Jesus said, I have other sheep, talking about the Gentiles, which are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. John 10, 16. Historically, this is the order, isn't it? Isn't this how Jesus told his apostles to take the gospel out? The gospel preaching began by the Jews. It continued with the Jews. Jesus commanded his disciples to all the nations, he said. But he said, beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus was Jewish. He was the Jewish Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He came, his disciples were Jewish, and they took the gospel out to the Gentiles. Paul himself, when he went into a new village, where did he go first? To the synagogue. Even though he's an apostle to the Gentiles, and that's going to be the majority of his ministry, he first went to his kinsmen, the Jews, and proclaimed to them. Sometimes he was ran out of the synagogue, and that's why he would then immediately go to the Gentiles. But other times, some Jews believed. So what does he mean to the Jew first? It's not just the historical order, though. It's not just the idea that the gospel went out first to them historically. But he's also reminding the reader here that the gospel was promised to the Jew in the Old Testament. Yes, Gentiles were mentioned as well. But look over at Romans 2 and verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. So we're all guilty. Jew, Gentile, we're all guilty. And then look at chapter 11 in Romans. He's going to come back around to this idea of the Jews. He talks a little bit about them in chapter 2. And says, what's the advantage of being a Jew if we're all sinners? Well, they have the oracles of God. They have the scriptures. They have the promises of God in writing. They've been entrusted with that. Many Jews don't believe. Most of the Jews of Paul's day did not believe. Most of the Jews today do not believe. But Romans 11 and verse 25, he comes back around to this. And he says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Now he's talking to Romans who are mostly Gentiles. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God made promises in the Old Testament. The Messiah came. Most of them rejected him. The nation was punished. They were destroyed. Jesus said there's going to be a time of the Gentiles. They're going to trod Jerusalem underfoot. Paul says there's a time of the Gentiles and there's a fullness. In other words, God has predestined who will be saved and all the Gentiles that he's predestined will come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul's not saying that the Jews are better that they're more righteous inherently. He's just simply saying, this is the order that God has planned it. 
And so I'm going to take it to the Jew first when I go to the synagogue and then to the Gentiles. One scholar, Barry Horner, says Jewish disciples preached a Jewish savior from Jewish scriptures in the capital of Judaism with the result that the first Christian church was Jewish. They won't be saved just because they're Jewish. They'll be saved when they believe in the Messiah, when they believe in Jesus Christ. There are some people out there who say, you know, there's two ways of salvation, believe in Jesus or be born a Jew. The Bible never teaches that. We certainly don't want to teach that. That's not true. It's only through Christ. And you read Zechariah and you read Romans and you see the idea is, yes, those Jews will be saved, but that's through faith in Christ. So the gospel goes out to all now, not only the Jew, but the Gentile as well. Paul knows this. He's going to the Gentiles. He's telling the Romans, look, just a reminder to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is good news to everyone without distinction. Everyone. That's why missionaries should, anyway, take the gospel to these other people groups, to these other nations, and proclaim it freely. It's not up to us who responds. It is up to us, though, that we preach a true gospel. And now he gets into the second reason. The second reason here that the gospel is something he's not ashamed of is that it reveals Christ's imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. This is a huge topic. We could spend weeks on imputation. We won't do that because we'll come back around to it many times in Romans. In fact, righteousness, the Greek word dikaiosune, is mentioned 29 times in Romans. So it's not wrong to say this book is about righteousness. 29 times it comes up. And eight times specifically on the dikaiosune, the righteousness of God. Eight times mentioned specifically. Let's look at a few of those, because this is where the center of Paul's theology is here in Romans. His main point is the righteousness of God and how it is revealed, how it is given to believers. Chapter 3, verse 21. After all the bad news that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks, from 118 through 320, He now comes back around to the heart of the gospel here. Romans 3.21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God. There it is again. Apart from the law. You don't get the righteousness of God from the law, from obeying and trying to be perfect. It's been manifested a different way. And he says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. This is nothing new, Paul says. It connects perfectly with what God has already said. Verse 22, Even the righteousness of God. There it is again. Through faith. How do we receive it? It's through faith. That's the vessel. That's what God uses to give us the righteousness of God. It's in Jesus Christ. That's where the faith is placed. Not just faith in general, but faith in a specific person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. For all those who believe. Again, reminding it has to be through faith. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our problem. That's what he's opened up over the previous two chapters. Being justified as a gift by his grace. So what does the righteousness of God lead to? If you receive the righteousness of God, it means that you've been justified. You've been declared righteous. You've been declared righteous. You're justified. You're no longer 
to be eternally punished for your sin. And he continues though. By justified as a gift. By his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There's so much to unpack here. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Meaning that Jesus appeased the father's wrath. In his blood. That's his death. Again through faith. It's not as if faith is disconnected here. And he says this was to demonstrate God's righteousness. We're back to God's righteousness. How did it happen? What happened through the gospel, through the proclamation here, and the actual act of Christ dying on the cross. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, there it is again, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's the gospel in a nutshell. Now he's opened it up bigger than what he does in 117 here. There's much more to talk about. There's much more to dig into. And we will, Lord willing, when we get there. But the point is, God's righteousness revealed, manifested, or you could say given to believers, is huge. It is the theme of the book. It is the heart of the gospel. Go over to chapter 10, verse 3. He gets in, into it again as he's talking about the Jews. And he describes them, he says, for not knowing about God's righteousness. They didn't understand. They thought, and he says it right here, seeking to establish their own. They thought they could establish their own righteousness by being perfect. We see that a lot today, don't we? I'll just be a good person. God will save me. He'll weigh out my good and my bad. And my good... Pat yourself on the back. My good will outdo my bad. That's never happened with anybody. We like to think that. But how much is enough to go into eternal punishment in hell? One sin. One sin completely tips the scale. The scale is broken. It doesn't matter what we put on the other side. It's never going to come back up after that. He says, For not knowing about God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own, They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, to the gospel, to Christ. And he goes on to say, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Stop trying to obey the law. Jews, that's not the way to receive God's righteousness. So Paul's saying here, back to verse 17, the second reason he's not ashamed of the gospel is because it reveals God's righteousness. It reveals it through the gospel. Particularly, he's talking about when people respond to the gospel in faith. Now, this is not God's attribute of righteousness. God is perfectly righteous. That describes who he is. That means he is righteous. That's Righteousness means that God himself is perfect. He's upright. He's just. And he upholds the glory and honor of his own name in every circumstance. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. God upholds the glory and honor of his own name in every circumstance. Something we don't do. We don't uphold God's glory and name in every circumstance. But he does for himself. Paul's not speaking about that, though. He's not saying here that God's going to take a little chunk of his attribute of righteousness and send it our way. And every time a believer is saved, he's sending us a little piece of the attribute of righteousness. 
What he's talking about here is the righteousness of Christ. What Christ has done in living a perfect life. You see, we, we lack righteousness of our own. The minute Adam sinned, all his progeny, everyone who comes after him, we're all sinners too. We all are born with a sin nature. We all start sinning as soon as we can. And we can't be righteous. We lack that. God has created us and he's told us to obey. He told Adam and Eve to obey. They did not. We would do the same as them. We would stumble into sin. That's what they did. But God calls us to be completely righteous. So what are we going to do if we're called to be righteous, but we cannot? Are we just going to spend our life trying to work for it and work for it and work for it? People are consumed with that around the world, trying to earn righteousness, trying to obey, trying to be perfect, trying to be a good person. It'll just consume your whole life and you won't get anywhere. It's like spinning your tires. It's like getting stuck in the mud. You're not going anywhere. Do we always uphold the glory of God and the honor of his name in every circumstance? You know, even if we thought we were doing really well, do we always uphold the honor of his name? Always glorify him in all that we do? No, we don't. We've all sinned, the Bible says. Romans will tell us, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous. We are condemned because of our own sin. Not one single person of their own self is righteous. No one who's ever lived except Christ. That's it. He's the only one that is perfectly righteous. So God's not going to take chunks of himself. That's, not, that's, that's pagan theology, right? Where God just takes pieces of himself and sends these little sparks out to people in the world. No, God sent his son who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross. He is perfectly righteous. He showed that. And we get that righteousness attributed to us. That's the gospel. When Christ came to the earth, he lived a perfect life. He was a man born under the law, it says. And he fulfilled every commandment that God had given. Everyone, even under the Mosaic law. And Christ obeyed perfectly. And not just outward obedience. A perfect obedience from the heart. He desired to obey his Father from the bottom of his heart we might say. He did what we could never do. He did what Adam could never do. That's why he's called the second Adam, because Adam failed. The first Adam failed. The second Adam succeeded. He lived a perfect life. For what purpose, though? He was already perfect. He's the son of God. For what purpose did he live a perfect life? Well, first of all, he could do nothing else. He could not sin. But secondly, to transfer that righteousness to the believer. Because you can never do it. How can you stand before God if you're not righteous? How did Adam do it that when he started at zero? See, the forgiveness of sins is awesome because we're never going to be with God unless we have our sins forgiven. But we need the positive part of it too. I looked up the most expensive country club in the world. It's in China. There's only 20 members because it costs $1 million to join this country club. So they have 20 members. And imagine if you wanted to join that country club. And you wanted to get in, but you were $1 million in debt. You could not work. You could not make money. And somebody came along, and he wipes out your negative $1 million. Are you any closer, really, to getting in there if you have no ability to make money? You're just back at zero. How are you going to get a membership to that country club? There's no way, unless the owner decides to give you one. 
Forgiveness of sins is awesome, and, and we should thank God for that and think about that every day. But there's this other element, too, that we need to remember. Not only did Christ take away our sin, but he gave us his righteousness. That's the only way that we get perfect righteousness. We have forgiveness of sins, and we have Christ's imputed righteousness. Let's talk about imputed righteousness. Psalm 31 points at this in the Old Testament. 31.1, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. He's going to be delivered, David says, by God giving a righteousness to David that's not David's. Also, Psalm 71.1, In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. This is imputed, meaning it's not yours. It's given to your account. It's on your ledger sheet. It's on your balance sheet, but it's not yours. It came in from somewhere else. It was imputed to you. Look at Romans 4.3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited. There's the idea of imputed. It was credited. It was reckoned. To him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham became righteous through obeying the law. It doesn't say Abraham lived a perfect life. Read your Old Testament. He did not live a perfect life. It says he believed and then God credited to him as righteousness. That's how it works. Go over to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here Paul really opens up both aspects. The idea of forgiveness and imputed righteousness. And this is where we get into the double imputation. There's not just his righteousness imputed to us, but our sins imputed to Christ. It's double. It's both ways. What a transaction. Look at this. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him, so he is God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin. He never sinned. He made him to be sin on our behalf. Not that Christ sinned for us, but he took on our sin. That God the Father looked at Christ and it was as if he was taking our place. He did take our place so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see what's happening there in that verse? One verse. Christ takes the worst of us, our sin, and we get the best of him, his righteousness. How about that? Is that something to be ashamed of? That's the greatest news ever in the history of humanity. That Christ would take away our sin, that's forgiveness, and give us his righteousness. There's a transaction happening here. It's it's forensic. It's legal, you might say. It's a change of transactions on the ledger. My sin imputed to Jesus, his righteousness imputed to me. Double imputation. That's the gospel right there. What's there to be ashamed about? Who cares if they laugh? Who cares if other so-called Christians laugh and make fun of you? That's the gospel that Paul's going to open up in Romans. He's going to go into all the details, all the theological juicy tidbits that we like. But it starts with this one phrase, the righteousness of God. God's righteousness. To be saved, we've got to be forgiven of sins, yes, but we have to have a perfect righteousness. The theologian Charles Hodge, he summarizes it well. He said, it's the work of Christ, that which he did and suffered to satisfy the demands of the law. The perfect righteousness of Christ, which complete 
meets and answers all the demands of that law to which all men are subject and which we've all broken. We need Christ's righteousness. We ought to thank the Lord for that every chance we get. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's, being a Christian is not just that you belong to a church, which you should. It's not just that you read your Bible and pray. At the heart of it is that we've been forgiven because Christ took away our sin and he's given us his righteousness. One of my favorite preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, has this wonderful paragraph, and I thought I'd just quote it to you because it explains this passage so well. He says, The ultimate end and objective of the Christian gospel is to answer the question that was propounded by Job. Remember what Job said centuries, centuries ago? How shall a man be just with God? Oldest book in the Bible, Job, asks the question, How shall a man be just? How shall a man be right with God? That is what it comes to. The business of the gospel is to make us righteous in the sight of God, to make us acceptable with God, to enable us to stand in the presence of God. Now, you may have comfortable feelings. You may have had marvelous experience. You may have had a great change in your life, and a number of wrong things may have gone out of your life. But I say that unless you have got something that enables you to stand before God now and in the day of judgment, you're not only not a Christian, He says, you have never understood the gospel. This is the central purpose of the gospel, to make a man just with God, to enable us to stand with righteousness in the presence of God. You've got to know this, Christian. You need to know this. Paul says, this is the gospel. This is why I'm not ashamed, because God's righteousness is revealed. And he goes on to say, from faith to faith. It's only for those who have faith. God's righteousness is not given to everyone. This imputed righteousness of Christ is given to those who are from faith to faith. A lot of people debate about what Paul's getting at here. And he's just talking about where it starts from faith and where it ends to faith. There's nothing else in between. That's all he's saying here. It's the centrality of receiving God's righteousness is faith in Christ. There's no other way. It's not as if you start by faith and then it turns into works. Oh, I'll trust in Christ and then I'll spend the rest of my life trying to work for it. It's not as if you work first and then it turns into faith. He says it's from faith to faith. From beginning to end, it's all about faith in Christ. From faith to faith. And he backs this up. He uses an Old Testament quote here from Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.4, as it is written from the Old Testament, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In Habakkuk's day, the Babylonians were coming. They were coming and they were going to destroy Israel. They're about to crush Israel. And God says those who trust in him alone will survive. Only those who live by faith. They're the righteous ones. And Paul says, There it is in the Old Testament. Here it is now in the New. He quotes it to back up what he's saying. It's faith that matters. Paul's just preaching the same old story that's been through the gospel. It's been through the Old Testament. All there. Abraham, faith alone in the coming Messiah. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul's now saying the Messiah has come. He's died on the cross. Believe in him. Believe in him. This verse right here, 
the last one I just read, the quote from the Old Testament, is what changed Martin Luther's mind about the gospel and what God used to save Martin Luther. Martin Luther's the guy who started the Reformation. God used him to fight back against the Roman Catholic theology of his day and still today. Roman Catholics don't agree with what I just preached. They don't agree with the interpretation that I just gave you of that passage. They would say, today they will admit that that Romans at least says that righteousness is declared. The scholars in the Roman Catholic Church are at least seeing that. They used to say it's not declared, it means becoming righteous. You work for it and you become righteous over time. But now, they do say, okay, God declares it, but it's because of your works that God declares it. It's not what it says. It's not, you work your whole life and maybe you've earned enough. And if you haven't, you can borrow it from the other saints who've gone before you. And then if that doesn't work, you can go to purgatory. Martin Luther said, that's not what the Bible teaches. Because he saw this verse. He was looking at this verse. He was studying Romans to teach it in a Catholic seminary. And he had been through Romans. He had been through Psalms. And he began to really hate God. Because he knew God was perfect. And no matter how hard you worked in the Roman Catholic system, you cannot be perfect. So what are you going to do? So here he comes back around to teach Romans again. He's reading it one night. And he comes to this passage. And here's what he said. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. I hated the righteousness of God. A righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus, I raged with fierce and troubled conscience. So on the one hand, he says, yeah, I believe in God, like a lot of people today. But when it came down to this issue, he knew he was a sinner, and he hated the righteousness of God. And he said, thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement right here, the righteous shall live by his faith. Then I grasped the righteousness of God. It is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn. He's born again. To be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. That's how important it is to understand the righteousness of God, how we receive it, how Christ died for us, how he lived a perfect life for us, how it gets imputed to us. You may not know all the details. You may not be able to write the next theological book on it, but you need to understand the basics of the gospel. And he's going to spend the rest of Romans now telling us more about that. Why we needed it. How it occurred. What it means for our sanctification in our life. How we are to live it out. If you're here today and you don't know the righteousness of God. You don't have it revealed to you. You haven't received it. Because you haven't had faith in Christ. Then trust in Him today. You're here sitting in a sermon listening about how to be saved. It would be a miserable life of eternity if you just went along your way and didn't trust in Christ. Now is the day of salvation. The Bible says. Today is the day of salvation. Today is when you need to ask yourself, children, teenagers, adults, have I received this righteousness that comes from Christ? 
Has God imputed that to me? Have I been forgiven? Today is the day. Which is many of us, most of us, believers in Christ. This is not just for the unbeliever to hear in an evangelistic sermon. This is for the believer. To read, to know, to understand, to thank God for, and to take out to those who have not heard the gospel, who have resisted the truth, who try to cast shame on Christianity because like the Jews, they don't understand the righteousness of God. Let this encourage us. Let this encourage us to evangelize our loved ones, our neighbors, our children. Can we do that together as a church? Amen. Let's pray to our Lord. Lord, thank you for this passage that Paul so easily summarized in a couple of verses what the book of Romans is about. Help us to know more about your righteousness. Not just how righteous you are, but how you've sent Christ and done that work and how it's imputed now, his righteousness to us. Let us ponder that. Let us meditate on that. Let us study more of that. Help us to love Christ all the more and to take the gospel to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.